the writing was on the wall. I mean, you can easily see it in retrospect. It's just people who lived through it. I mean, they could see it, but they didn't believe that that's what it was. And I don't think we're believing what we're seeing. What, what do they say? When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging? I mean, boy, are we digging. We are digging. We just brought more excavators. We're just digging. Until we stop digging, we're, we're, we're not going to start getting to a positive outcome. And I think we'll continue to dig very aggressively. Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes. At this point, you know the drill. If you like what we're doing, like, subscribe, rate, and review. And just as a reminder, we have these on YouTube and also on podcasts. So if you're watching on YouTube, just remember we've got this on all the different podcast uh, stations. So go there and you can download and listen to your car or wherever's convenient. We're about to speak with Simon Mikhailovich. He's the co-founder and lead manager at the Boyan Reserve. And we've actually spoken to him before, so make sure to check out the older interview where we dive into his backstory. He was born in the Soviet Union. His family, once he was 19, they fled to the US. This is before the collapse. And then later he was working the financial markets and actually saw what he thought to be a big bubble in the mortgage-backed securities. And so he actually shorted that. We talk about all of that in the old interview. It's super interesting. This time we're going to dive into the macro forces at play in our world. How does he see the landscape and what are some unique things he's looking at currently? As always, Simon is a wonderful resource for clarity and his observations of how unique human elements transcend through history. I hope you enjoy. Simon, well, thanks for joining today. Really looking forward to another conversation. Thank you, likewise. So some, some folks here listening are going to be very familiar with your work. Others might be a little unknown of the kinds of thoughts and how you think about the world. So I think a good way to start perhaps is just breaking down for us in the most simple terms possible. What's that one big story that kind of um, impacts all the way that you see the current markets and the macro environment right now? I think the biggest story that is not covered at all in the media and is not really debated that much in academic circles is, uh, or, or if it is debated, is, is usually from the sort of socialist uh, side of things. So the biggest story is, is, is a question as to why our economic and financial system keep failing, requiring, uh, keep failing without ability to uh, get off their knees themselves. Uh, and what is it that for, I don't know, 50 years now, since the 60s maybe or the 70s, has prevented the U.S. economy to grow in the absence of persistent credit, credit expansion, in other words, borrowing money, subsidy uh, from, from borrowed money, and uh, without persistently declining uh, interest rates, which at this point have become price controls. So the real story is, what is it about the system that doesn't work? Because there's something that doesn't work. And instead of trying to figure out what it is that doesn't work, everybody's trying to figure out how to you know, beat this dead horse uh, into getting up and, and taking a sprint. That's what I think is the biggest story. 
Because ultimately, I mean, there's a great quote about that, and that's failure does not teach unless it is understood. So we keep having financial crises where the government has to keep coming in with massive reorg, you know, reorganizations and subsidies and, and bailouts time and again, and yet uh, no one takes a step back and says, is, is this systemic uh, is there some, is there something embedded here? Is there some uh, business model flaw? The growth model itself is it flawed in some way? And of course, the reason I say other than from the socialist side is because socialists always explain that as a failure of capitalism. Hmm. And of course, maybe it is a failure of capitalism, or it's a failure of this version of capitalism that we're practicing, which may or may not be capitalism as it is understood. Uh, conventionally, or it certainly is not anymore capitalism as it was understood conventionally. Uh, capitalism implies free markets, of which we haven't had any for for a long time. Uh, but I think that's I think that's a big that's the biggest issue because until we figure out what it is that's really wrong, uh, we're just keep going to keep ambling uh, towards. Uh, for, you know, instead of going from strength to strength, we're just ambling from failure to failure. And each successive failure is bigger and bigger because instead of fixing whatever it is that ails us, we keep doubling down uh, on the on the same system, uh, such as it is, uh, whatever you call it. Uh, and it just doesn't seem to work the way it's intended to work. And I think that's the, that's. I think last time we talked, we, we, we talked about the, dichotomy between ideology of, say, uh, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and the reality mm -hmm. of actually what is going on. So all the slogans and all the, like the war on poverty, the war on this, the war on that, we haven't won a war in a long time of any kind. Uh, and so I think some massive self-reflection uh, that questions the unquestionable is perhaps uh, in order. And very much overdue. Yeah, and I, that that's a good throwback. Our last conversation was super fascinating. I re-listened to it. I, I thought so much about that. And you really speak a lot about your personal story um, when you were younger and then in markets uh, here in the U.S. So I definitely recommend folks to go check back and um, listen to that that conversation. And so in, in a nutshell, what is broken? What is this thing we fail to fix? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, th this is something that will take uh, a collective um, inte intellectual, uh, intellectual horsepower, I guess, of the world to figure out. I mean, even if you look at uh, uh, countries like China and, and Russia, which are challenging uh, you know, U.S. supremacy, I think they're broken too. I think there's some uh, fundamental flaw in the system that we have. And maybe it's not a flaw in the system. Maybe the circumstances have changed. Like, for example, we are going from um, population growth to flattening population. That doesn't mean that in the United States, let's say the immigration, we can grow due to immigration. I'm talking about in aggregate in the world. So if the global population is slowing down, a growth in the global population is slowing down, in a world that has become globalized, that's a massive problem because the whole free market system is based on growth. Everything is based on growth. All the earnings, all the expectations, all the prices, everything implies growth. But without population growth, there can be no growth in aggregate. Mm -hmm. 
And so if there's no growth in aggregate, then it's a fight for the slices of the pie because maybe one slice can grow, but the whole pie is not growing. Um, and so in that type of environment, the entire framework and the system that we have of economic, of, of creating prosperity and bringing people along with that prosperity, it doesn't work. We are just not set up for that. Um, the other thing is clearly, uh, what the other thing that's clearly not working is the hegemonic system where the United States has ended up by default as the global uh you know, uh, superpower, unipolar, single superpower, uh, trying to project uh, power throughout the world, militarily, economically, politically, and uh, running into all kinds of obstacles uh, and just limitations uh, in, in its ability to do that. Because while we're massively running deficit and borrowing money, I mean, we're trying to spend a trillion dollars a year on security or whatever you want to call it, defense or military, national security. Um, and so our ability to afford that uh, is waning, I mean, right as we speak. And yet there's no recognition that that's so. So instead, the politicians say, we need to spend more, we need to spend more. Well, th that's what happened to the Soviet Union, I hate to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, they they uh, thought, or they being the leadership thought, that they commanded unlimited resources, that they could bail everybody out indefinitely, that they can subsidize unprofitable businesses, that they can subsidize uh, unprofitable, uh, you know, uh, transportation systems and the military and everything, because the country was so rich in resources. And they went down without losing that belief. <laughs> You know, they believed that until the whole thing ended, uh, because the reality was, as with every previous empire, the resources in the end proved to be not unlimited, not just in purely financial terms, but also in the political and credibility terms, which is all very much intertwined, particularly in the fiat money system, where it's all about confidence. It's kind of a confidence game we're running. Yeah. Uh, and we're running out of confidence. And we're never going to run out of printed money. We're never going to run out of, you know, uh, financial assets uh, to create and claims to create on the same uh, real assets over and over again. But it's the confidence that keeps it all going. And that's in the end, that's that's what brings down the empires. It's a collapse in confidence because in, in substance, uh, what, what ends up happening probably has been a, a sort of uh, coming up for a while. It just, it just the final denouement, as they say in French, the unwinding, the end game. Uh, that just, that's just the final act as opposed to, uh, so people think that empires collapse when they collapse, but they actually, it all happens before. It's just sort of the, the, the final, or whatever, the straw that broke the camel's back is what, is what actually, um, moves, you know, creates the event. But if you analyze the situation, but whether it's the Soviet Empire or the Russian Empire or the, or, or the uh, British Empire or whatever empire, the Roman Empire, I mean, the writing was on the wall. I mean, you can easily see it in retrospect. It's just people who lived through it. They, I mean, they could see, it, but they didn't believe that that's what it was. And I don't think we're believing what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, people seeing is not believing if you, if, if you're, you know, if you have a certain mindset. So you can see it, but and not believe it. A, 
a common. That's what I think is happening. Yeah. And a common thread I'm hearing, and I'm putting this to you, is do you think this is a part of it, is that an inability to play within your means. So you're, you're reaching past the, uh, the level of resources you have. You're, you're reaching past the level of confidence available to your system. Is there, is there some form of that, of, of uh, living outside of your means in this greater context of, of empire and nation states? I'm not sure I understand what 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 of, you're trying to get at. Um, like how you're mentioning the Soviet Union had a, not unlimited resources, but they lived as if they had unlimited resources, natural resources, and then the U.S. is perhaps living as if we have unlimited confidence in the U.S. dollar in our system. So, is there some element of there's this thing that's really powerful, really wonderful, like natural resources in Soviet Union, or the confidence in the global reserve currency that we can print? But we're pushing it just too far. We just want a little more. Is is there an element of that? Well, we want a little more. We don't want a little more. We want a lot more. <laughs> a lot more. I mean, we just <laughs> a little more. No, I mean, a little more would be would, would take us a lot longer to mm-hmm. to, uh, to get to that to that end stage. I mean, we're we're just galloping uh, towards it. And I, I don't know how far there's left to gallop to, but it's, I mean, we're the pace is accelerating. I mean, just look at the last twelve months since you and I spoke. I mean, how much has happened, uh, and, and 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 all of these things that have happened. If you if you stand back and think about them, I mean, they they all are have echoes uh, in the past and in other situations. And uh, you know, uh, we were talking before we started. You know, the election of twenty twenty. So this is now the second uh, presidential election where the losing side is absolutely convinced that the election had been rigged. Yeah, I mean, absolutely convinced. So in 2016, uh, the Democrats and or Democratic Party and, and people who support that party were absolutely convinced uh, that the Russians, I don't know, whoever it was, that somebody, some external force has uh, changed the outcome of that election. And in 2020, the defeated side, the Republicans this time, and whoever supports them, are convinced that the election had been rigged. So, so this is, I mean, talk about the loss of confidence and, and yeah. the loss of faith in the system. I mean, it's, these are manifest type of uh, uh, symptoms, even though people may be looking at them specifically, like this is a situation and this is a situation, but compare them. So four years, two situations. And I think in the history of the United States, uh, where one of the strengths of the country was generally its comity uh, and acceptance of the uh, results of elections and of the system as a whole. I mean, suddenly you have a situation where for five years now, uh, both sides are battling ideologically without almost any common ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, that, and that hasn't happened since, since the 1850s and 60s. And it's all obviously very dangerous. Uh, We have other manifestations of loss of confidence. Now, again, loss of confidence that we're talking about as a catalyst uh, for a change is a concerted loss of confidence, meaning like systemic, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this group or that group. But that's how it starts. We have the whole phenomenon uh, of cryptocurrencies and 
NFTs and, uh, you know, SPACs, these uh, special purpose acquisition companies that are issuing shares without declaring the reason for why they're doing it. Specifically, they're just raising money because they think that they can make money with it by acquiring other companies. And one may think that this is something new, but in fact, in 1720, during the uh, South Sea bubble, uh, there was a famous uh, situation where one company issued stock uh, that uh, was, you know, the purpose of the issuance was explained. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact uh, phraseology, but something like, you know, for ventures, uh, the purpose of which cannot be disclosed or something like that. For profitable uh, purposes, uh, which cannot be explained up front. I mean, this happened in 1720. I mean, this is 300 years yeah. ago. So, I mean, talk about nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. We're just doing it. I mean, we are just doing it on a bigger scale with more technology and more confidence they raised, I forgot, it was 2,000 pounds, which was a lot of money 300 years ago. Millions. But we're raising billions and billions and billions. Uh, I mean, the whole crypto phenomenon, when when uh, somebody says, uh, I don't know, Elon Musk says something and, and there's a 20% rally and then he says something else and there's yes. a 20% sell-off. <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it's comical, but it's almost comical that the billions of dollars uh, are tens of billions of dollars are wagered and lost because some quote unquote influencer opens his mouth and then says one thing, then he says the opposite thing, then he says a third thing. And every time people, with, with, you know, with bated breath, you know, are sitting there waiting for you to say something and then act on that. Uh, I mean, the guy invents a Dogecoin as a joke and it becomes a multi billion dollar uh, thing. So, so these are, I think, the, the, the so that particular um, phenomenon. And, and notice that, you know, cryptocurrencies have been around for 10 years uh, or 12 years, whatever. No one until last year in the mainstream media or in the mainstream financial institutions or anything like that had thought uh, very seriously about that. And suddenly they are because, not just to be clear, just because financial institutions are suddenly interested in some particular financial innovation, in my experience, says absolutely nothing about the value, ultimately, of that mm -hmm. innovation. Financial institutions, as you recall, embraced in mass subprime mortgage securitizations, I mean, into trillions of dollars. So the fact that they did that only, only to me, says that they see a way to make money if, for themselves in the moment. It doesn't say absolutely anything, one way or another, as to whether this is legitimate uh, uh, investment proposition. Because yeah. clearly, the, the, Wall Street has done a tremendous amount of damage to, with all kinds of speculations, continues to be unpunished for that, or uh, uh, not called to account for that. So why not, why not keep doing it? So what I'm saying about where I'm going with the crypto um, analogy is that essentially it is driven by a loss of faith in the financial system, in, in the currency. It is driven by the loss of faith in the system where people perceive that um, rampant criminality in the financial institutions. And I don't say that because I say that. I say that because uh, financial institutions have paid billions of dollars or tens of billions or a couple of hundred billion dollars in fines without admitting liability for all sorts of activities that 
in other times would have been considered criminal violations of securities laws. Uh, and no one really, except for a few lower ranked people, have ever gone to jail for that. And when I say few, I mean, you can count them probably on a single hand. So given the scope of debacles that we've had uh, in all sorts of areas uh, of financial industry in the last 20 years, uh, it's, uh, you know, Madoff was the last guy who really got punished, but seriously punished. But what's going on is not that different from what he was doing, just on a much bigger scale. Which uh, so, so a couple of things on that. First of all, uh, where I'm leading with this with the crypto is this is a, uh, a vote of no confidence. This is a, uh, I, th- I, I see it as a, um, a reaction to impunity for the uh, financial institutions where people saying instead of, so instead of saying, you know, we need to bring criminality to, a, to an end, we need the system to be restored and we need uh, people punished for uh, breaking the law and we need to restore sanity and legality. People are saying, well, you know, if the big guys can do this, why don't we just democratize this fraud and criminality? Why, why, don't, why don't we all have a crack at it? Um, hmm. Which kind of also what happened in the Soviet Union in the 80s. So once the dam broke and Gorbachev came in, people started saying, well, geez, uh, I mean, I knew this wasn't working, but now I really see it's not working. So why don't we all do it? I mean, actually, it started in the 70s, you know, when when just corruption spawned or spinned, I should say, out of control for the same reason, because once people lose faith in the institutions and they come to the conclusion that they're being screwed, excuse me, um, then then the reaction to that of a lot of people is say, well, I'm just going to do that. Uh, and that, of course, is is the end of civil society because civil society is based on some moral code and some understanding or some pact between the people that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong. And what is right and what is wrong and wrong is not encouraged and punished. Obviously, not, not everybody can get punished, but at least they make examples of some people. That just hasn't happened. So this... Uh, anarchy, if you will, in financial affairs, basically saying, you know, I can be my own central bank. I don't need any regulations. I'm not going to pay the taxes to anybody. I'm not going to do anything uh, that uh, the normal structure of society requires me to do. And some sort of nihilism that rejects morality, essentially. Uh, So financial anarchy and financial nihilism, uh, just like political anarchy and political nihilism in, say, 1900s Russia, uh, (laughs) you know, catalyzed eventually into a regime change. Uh, I'm not saying it will do it here, but we're certainly seeing very similar types of, uh, you know, symptoms here. So we have a couple of elections that undermine people's confidence. We have complete undermining of confidence in the financial system and in the the whole concept of uh, fundamental value of that something's worth something because of some long-term reasons. Everything is a trade. Everything is a speculation. Uh, you know, uh, cyber kittens or whatever, crypto kittens are worth, yeah, the crypto are worth at one point. I haven't heard of them <laughs> lately, but, you know, we're worth whatever, millions. Um, I don't think these are isolated uh, events. I think yeah, these are these are all straws in the wind uh, that, that all tie together to the same theme. And that is uh, we have overreached. Uh, the confidence 
in our ability to continue reaching safely is eroding. Uh, you know, erosion is a slow process, but we, nobody knows what the tipping point, you know, they call it a tipping or fulcrum. I mean, nobody knows what that is. It could be completely inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's not the event. So somebody asked me today, uh, "What you know? What's going to tip? You know, what what is the catalyst? I mean, who knows what the catalyst is? The catalyst is usually it's like if you look at history, it you know, if be you're fly in search of a windshield, <laughs> there will be a windshield. <laughs> what model of the car of the windshield doesn't really matter, and that and that's what uh, I think uh, is the danger is. And of course, Afghanistan. I mean, that, I mean, talk about classic. The, here we are uh, last week announcing withdrawal of Afgan- from Afghanistan after 20 years. I mean, this is longer than pretty much any war that the United States has ever fought. Uh, well, you know, Soviet Empire gave its last 10 best last years to that country. And the British Empire uh, gave its last years to that country, too. In fact, you know, just, just as curiosity, you know, for those who uh, read Sherlock Holmes, the first story, I mean, people don't remember that probably, but the first story of Sherlock Holmes is where, where uh, Dr. Watson and, and, and Holmes meet. Uh, the context of that meeting is that Dr. Watson was fighting in the Second Afghan War and got, and got uh, uh, wounded there. Huh, this was uh, 1880s or 1890s. Uh, and so he got wounded. He was in London convalescing, looking for an apartment. And, and this is how he was introduced to Holmes, who was also looking for an apartment. I mean, that was the context. So Afghanistan is something that's been, it's like the burial ground of the empires. I mean, everybody goes there. Nobody can beat it. Uh, and so here we are now with a tail between our legs. You know, we're leaving. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be another extreme terrorist and whatever, extreme religious breeding ground for discontent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the, these are all these are all little things. It's like, you know, in a painting, they're, they're strokes of, of, of pain. But, you know, if you, if you pull yourself back, you can start seeing an image. And whether I'm right about that or not, I don't know. But if you look at history, I mean, all of these types, not specifically these events, but these types of events have all been observed uh, in the preview of change. But I also, I, I always say that, and I think I said it last time, and I'll say it again. Imperial collapse has nothing to do with death or with physical demise. Because even though Russian Empire, quote-unquote, collapsed in 1917, it didn't actually collapse. It was just, it was a regime change. Different government came in, a different system came in. And then it did sort of collapse when the Soviet Empire collapsed. But, you know, Russia that remains is still a federation of many, many different republics and nationalities. We don't know if we've seen the end of that collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, even though it's quote unquote collapse, you know, Russia is not gone and Moscow and St. Petersburg, are beautiful cities and uh, there's culture there and there's good food there. And, you know, anybody who's traveled there, it's, it's not a very rich country in terms of people, population, but it's a pretty strong country. Uh, so it's a British empire. I mean, if you travel around England, I mean, you wouldn't say that this is, a, you know, some sort of a third world nation. So it's not that the United States, the loss of influence of the United States or the loss of empire necessarily means, or not necessarily, or even specifically means sort of societal collapse and a Mad Max type of, uh, you know, outcome. It just means that we're going to have to come to terms with what we're able to do and what we're not able to do. 
and and deal with that instead of instead of shoving it under the rug like we've been doing for the last 50 60 years so what could be That's, what could be some a little pivot there i like where you took that what could be some benefits of the decline of the american empire well, if we don't need to spend a trillion dollars on, on you know, uh, maintaining 600 some bases all over the world and, and well, that, you know, that's building an easy start. aircraft carriers, <laughs> that, well, that's an easy start. That's a lot right mm-hmm. there, right? Uh, the more sad part probably is that we can't afford and probably won't be able to afford uh, the social security system that we have and mm. social welfare system that we have. So welfare state is going to take a significant haircut. Um, I mean, I just don't see a economically painless way out of this. Yeah. I mean, it's like you have to pay the piper. And usually when there's an econo- when there's economic pain, that's accompanied by political turmoil. Because essentially by failing to solve this dilemma, which I started with as to what is it about the system that has changed so that it is not working the way it worked before, that it is not producing growth so that there is no, and you and I discussed it last time, trickle down. So there is no trickle down effect the same way as there had been uh, in previous uh, busts and recoveries. You know, so what is it that needs to be changed? So there's no debate about that. Like I said, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody knows the answer in any country. This is not something that's like, okay, if we did this, it's all fixed. We don't know what works. But the longer we deny that that this is not working and will not work because it hasn't worked, uh, piling up, uh, you know, digging. What, what do they say when you find yourself in a hole? Stop digging. I mean, boy, are we digging? We are digging. We just brought more excavators. We're just digging. We're just digging it deeper and deeper. So when we until we stop digging, we're 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 not going to start getting to a positive outcome here. And I think we'll continue to dig very aggressively. So I'd like to, if, if you're okay with it, take it back to crypto for a little bit. Um, because sure. there's, there's a lot of folks that are very passionate on either side of, you could say that debate or argument or, and you are, I would say mostly not for it, uh, for some reasons you articulated earlier. And I think it's very interesting though, the dynamic that uh, again, we're hearkening back to our uh, previous interview, but you laid out your case for gold and why you believe that is a um, an asset to hold going into our near future. And a, a lot of folks are ninety. A lot of crypto folks are ninety nine percent there with you, but then just the last little bit, they perhaps are like, okay, well, the answer for me is crypto, not gold, or the answer for me is gold and crypto, and so. What what are your thoughts on that when someone, you know, word for word agrees for everything the exact way that you frame and, and see these events and yet they divulge in that last little bit of like, you know what, I want to hold some gold, I want to hold some crypto. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think I think there's a difference between agreeing on a problem and agreeing on a solution mm-hmm. to the problem, right? So we may see the problem in a similar way. Uh but we don't do we don't see solution in a similar way, and in part perhaps because we we see the problem or we see the symptoms of a problem in the same way, but we don't necessarily agree on what 
the details of the problem. So uh, the way I, I mean, I, first of all, I'm not against crypto. I mean, I think it's an interesting technology. I, I don't know, you know, like every joke has a grain of truth. So uh, you can criticize all you want, but there has to be some grain of truth in, mm. in the technology. And if not in this specific technology, in the whole concept um, of, uh, you know, making transactions easier, uh, more robust networks and so forth. Um, where I think there's a, a big disagreement between people who, uh, well, I, I, I can't speak for other people, but in my mind, where there's a big disagreement, is failure on the or infatuation, I think, on the part of people who uh, really believe in crypto, is infatuation with uh, the idea that there is quote unquote independence and freedom in cyberspace. So you know, rejection of a financial system. Um, has been replaced with embrace of a different an embrace of a different system, which is a human uh, operated system. And uh, by removing trust from the financial system, uh, people are placing trust in a different human system. And based on what I've seen to date, or what we've seen to date, I don't know that that new system deserves as much trust as it's being given, because look at the amount of um, criminality and and fraud and hyping and pumping and all kinds of activities that are very much described in the securities laws and are totally illegal that are <laughs> that are happening there so i think i think with 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 the reason the reason i prefer gold in in one sentence is gold is the only financial asset that is not a human endeavor See, the reason it has survived, I think, aside from its physical qualities and the fact that it's lasting and indestructible and whatever, and it's independent from the any kind of system that it, it's independent from humans, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it lives, it's a physical element that lives by itself. It doesn't need anybody's approval or support or, uh, or, or mining or anything. It just, it just is. Uh, because all human projects, in the end, either get fa failed as they are, they get reorganized. You know, civilizations, like all civilizations and empires that have fallen, I mean, it's not that they have disappeared in a sense that we have continued to build on the intellectual property and achievements uh, and insights that have been achieved, or the good part. We've, the civilization has taken the good part from the Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire and all of the empires and all of the great civilizations that have lived there. Their legacy continues um, in our civilization, to the extent it's a positive legacy that we have adopted the mm -hmm. best, we've discarded the worst, and, and we've kind of moved on. So the reason I think gold has survived is because people naturally in financial affairs are prone to overexcitement. Um, that's why <laughs> bubbles form. Generous that's way why euphorious form. Um, greed and fear. You know, I mean, it's not a. We're not mm -hmm. a. There's no thermostat here. It's like it gets overheated and then there's a cool down and then, you know, the cycle repeats. It's because human nature, uh, I mean, we are, after all, mammals. And so we are driven by rational thought, but we're also driven by impulse. Uh, and so the reason gold has survived as a uh, store of value and as a financial asset, uh, the only financial asset that has survived 
over thousands of years is because it's not a human endeavor. It's not a promise or, or you can get excited about it or not get excited about it. It doesn't care. Uh, it doesn't need anybody or any excitement. It doesn't rely on anybody. Nothing needs to operate or exist. No consensus need to continue for goal to be what it is. In other words, humans can't do anything to it. Yes, of course, humans can do a lot of things to how you own it or whom you entrust it to, to, and so all other things. I'm talking about itself, the inherent properties of the substance itself. And of course, this is also true about copper, but there are other reasons why copper is not gold. It has to do with the value and the rarity and the fact that it doesn't degrade and other things. There are physical properties that make it stand out um, among all physical assets. But the one property that makes it stand out, and I think that's where crypto, to me, does not meet that test, is, is independence from humans itself. So crypto is a human construct. It's, it's a code. It's a program. I mean, it's whatever. It's protocol. Uh, and for the protocol to work, there needs to be an entire infrastructure that needs to continue to work. And then, of course, humans can change uh, the rules. Uh, so where I think there's there's some level of uh, hope or I don't know a conviction which I don't think is 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 uh, fundamentally sound uh, on the part of the crypto community is that the system that they have is infallible uh, and that people who operate this system uh, by consensus can continue to decide to do the right thing but you know I mean democracy is a consensus and no democracy has ever survived either. Because humans tend to, like I said, get overexcited about things and hubris gets the better of them. And so that's where I see the fatal flaw as a permanent, lasting, independent sort of um, a framework in crypto is that it's as much as much as algorithm itself can limit or can create artificial scarcity for this or that particular digital code the system itself has to continue to work and and there have to be incentives for people to operate it. They have to be allowed to operate it. They have to have access to electricity. They, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to work. We take for granted a lot of things. Like look, look what happened to the uh, logistics networks here. I mean, we've taken them completely for granted. And suddenly, you know, you can't take them for granted because they're getting disrupted. And I think the same thing is here. So I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think the difference is, is that the entire crypto um, enterprise is filled with human hubris and human ideas and humans and all that humans are about. And it's wonderful. But it's also human frailties and human flaws. Mm -hmm. And that is what gold does not have. It just doesn't. And that's why it's the only thing that's still standing after all these millennia. And that's why it will be the last uh, asset standing after all this is over. Not because it's so special or there's something like mystique about it or anything like that. It's a rational choice that many civilizations have made independently from each other. I don't remember if we talked about it last time. But you know, gold was valuable in China and it was valuable in the Roman Empire and in Incas. And these, these civilizations didn't know about each other. They, they were in different times and in different places, and they uh, evolved to, uh, to choose the same thing. And there are reasons for it. So there are reasons for that. And I think that one of the reasons it's no king uh, or no group of smart people can actually bend the substance to their will uh, over the long term, because it just is. 
And that's the, and that's the difference. And that's a unique property that crypto does not have and can never have. Nothing yeah. human made can ever have that property. It's not a knock on crypto. And it doesn't mean that it's bad or that it doesn't have uses. There's just no such thing as digital gold, just as there's no such thing as digital stake or digital toilet. I mean, certain things cannot be digitized. For I mean, for reasons. Yeah. They just can't. There, there are reasons for that. It's That's an interesting long view that you're taking of eventually this thing has the ability to change. And I... I'm sure a lot of crypto folks would argue against that, but it, I'm sure they would. Yeah. And, and that's fine. Everyone's got their opinion, but that is a very sure. interesting long view. Like I'm, I'm really hearing that that's your single difference here is like, is you're taking this really stretching it out on a time horizon. And well, but I mean, for something to be a store of value, I mean, time horizon, you know, I mean, people think in terms of months here or years, but you know, I mean, just think of a human life mm-hmm. and think of an investing life cycle. I mean, somebody in their 20s gets out of college, starts work, uh, opens like in the United States 401k and they start putting away whatever, several percent of their salaries. I mean, this is a 40 year project, a 50 year mm-hmm. project. So so to to be rich for, you know, 15 years and then to become poor, that's not that that's failure of the project. You know, so yeah. just because we're maybe, I, and I'm not saying that that's the end. What I am saying is that that cannot be dismissed. Mm-hmm. A- another interesting, and it's being dismissed. Yeah, this possibility is being dismissed, and that's I think is the problem. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great point. Another thing that I think is interesting about crypto, and you you kind of touched on this earlier, and that the markets currently are they're not free markets. We don't have no. an environment where capitalism can, can truly flourish. And I, I think about reminiscence of a stock operator. This, for folks who aren't familiar, it's this book. It's about Jesse Livermore. It's you know a, mm-hmm. a well-known speculator in the 20s and 30s. And I think about his stories, and they're filled with very similar things to what I see in crypto right now. It's like this wild west of, of markets. And so I wonder if, Crypto is almost the market's way of beginning to enact itself on a non-free market. It's like this pocket where these this greed and this fear and these human uh, elements that are unable to enact themselves in bonds or equities or really any other main asset class currently. It's like this pocket of freedom, which also is this pocket of corruption and is and its pocket of fortune and lost fortunes. Do you do you see it at all of this? Maybe that's not how the market is going to change the current framework of the Fed controlling everything. But do you see it as beginning of this like flash in the pan of the market trying to enact its forces on on our transactions like at all? Am I making any sense here? Yeah, no, no, that's, okay. that's, that's, that's kind of what I said when people see, I, yeah. maybe I didn't finish the thought. Uh, when people realize that there's criminality and the system is rigged, I mean, they're looking for an outlet. But what my point was that instead of trying to set up a fair and, and, and uh, well-operated uh, free market, mm-hmm. we are just doubling down on, on it. now it's a free market with all the same problems or, or amplifying the same problems. 
that they're perceiving in the rigged markets. I mean, it's rig- it's rigged by a small group of people in a different way. Hmm. You know, it's 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 not it's a it's a free market, quote unquote. But it's not really a free market. There's a very yeah. small number of exchanges and, and whales, quote unquote, that uh, control flows. And uh, there's just another form of oligarchy where the little guy, uh, you know, thinks they're free. But I don't think they're really free. A- and not to mention that, you know, what's so great about a system where every transaction, you know, free market, where every transaction is per- perpetually recorded and this record is discoverable essentially forever by authorities who may want to investigate you, you know, uh, five years from now or six years from now. And it's an open book, you know, and, and especially if quantum computing, you know, breaks the, uh, the encryption. Although even today, apparently, National Security Agency and all kinds of security agencies, the alphabet soup, I mean, have tremendous uh, capabilities in terms of de-anonymizing the uh, all sorts of uh, crypto transactions Mm -hmm. uh, and messing and messing with people's wallets and repossessing them and all kinds of stuff. So I I think there's a bit of hubris there in terms of uh, this feeling of invulnerability, which maybe is not warranted. So I think the urge is similar to what you're is what you're describing, but I think the execution. And maybe the thinking that's gone into it is, is, is a bit flawed because essentially it's like a simulacra of the existing system or it's an attempt yeah. to get away from the existing system, but in so many ways resembles it, just with different cast of characters. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing because in the context of, say, the government or the Fed, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, this is a danger. But it, it seems more like a catch-22 because as – in the one hand, the well-known narrative is as congressmen and congresswomen uh, become adopters and holders of crypto, they become less interested in regulating as if their constituencies are pushing for that. And then also I think about the – it's an outlet for inflation. Uh, the market cap is like $1.8 trillion right now. So that's – it's almost like 1.8 trillion. The Fed doesn't have to worry about inflating house prices or inflating assets. And so, on one hand, it's really helping them because they're able to continue printing money and and uh, perhaps spurring inflation to eat away the national debt and all these things. And and yet, it's this thing that's supposed to be the harbinger of change for the U.S. dollar that could dethrone it. It's a weird dichotomy. Look, I, I, I can't explain everything. <laughs> Some <laughs> things are inexplicable. Uh, but, well, I mean, they are. But it's like flames to moth, you know? I mean, politicians, when you say that as they own crypto, I mean, what is the motivation here? You know, earlier in this conversation, I said, just the fact that Wall Street firms are suddenly interested in it, uh, I don't see that as a sign that it's a uh, pro- that it's fundamentally sound. I just see that as a sign that there's money to be made. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they do. They they they're there to find financial products with which they can make money. So if they've opened this new patch, uh, you know, of speculation, the whole world of speculation, that where they can make money by intermediating it and trading and you know positioning and doing all kinds of stuff, 
They did that with CDOs. They did that with high-yield junk bonds. I mean, they did with a lot of stuff that eventually was proven to have been extremely unsound. Um, and the same thing with the politicians. I mean, if they are, you know, let's say if some politicians pro-crypto because they own it and they want the price to go up, that's that's not a good reason. I mean, that doesn't say anything about its its soundness or anything. Now, I think that strategically, it's a it's a major threat to the uh, sovereign monetary monopoly. And therefore, and that's the other reason why I think there would be a problem with that. See, in the past, every time uh, uh, the sovereign was threatened, I mean, this happened in the, um, I'm sorry, the, um, the French bubble um, that was around the time of the South Sea bubble, you know, John Law and, and the Mississippi Company. You know, uh, that all ended with, with restrictions on gold because every, every, time, every time this happens, the governments try to control gold. You see, the, the, but the thing about gold, the governments can't control it. I mean, they can control it somewhat on their territory, but because it's physical, uh, portable, um, and not in and of itself traceable except by, uh, you know, police work, you know, uh, physical police work, just like drugs, frankly. I mean, that's why the war on drugs can never be won and has never been won, or the war on alcohol in the in the United States in the in the twenty the prohibition in the twenties and thirties. I mean, if people want to do something with portable physical goods or whatever black market it is, no government has ever been able to defeat that. And maybe they can't defeat uh, crypto either. But you see, crypto relies on the networks, which governments do control. To a large extent, internet, access to electricity, access to the internet service providers, uh, access to cell phones, app stores. There's an entire infrastructure that needs to operate and be allowed to operate in order for the for the system to work. So, yes, of course, uh, maybe the governments can't completely uh, drive it out, uh, just like they can't drive out dark web. There's dark web. But Dark web is not like if crypto had to go into the dark web, I mean, it would exist, but it certainly wouldn't be uh, anything of the size or scope that people think it can be or would be. I mean, there is a dark web and there's trade on it, but it's just it's it's not for the civilians, let's say, you know, and it requires level of operational security and technical knowledge that the vast majority of the people absolutely don't have and, and probably will never have. Um Whereas gold or whatever it is, silver or I don't know what it is, a marijuana joint up until recently is is becoming legal in more state, you know, can be in the sock drawer and go find it. I mean, it just that's the practicality of life. I mean, it's just the way it is. So certain things. So it's not like the governments have have never attacked gold. I mean, they private ownership of gold was banned mm-hmm. in the United States precisely for the same reason because the government was bust in the 30s you know it needed it needed to control the money uh, and that may happen again but I- even if it did you know ability to control gold everywhere in the world it's just it's not feasible it's not possible and it can never happen whereas that's not necessarily true with digital endeavors or not nearly to the same extent with digital endeavors uh, because of their complexity, because of the technical nature, because of the uh, infrastructure that needs to exist, and so forth and so on. So, um, you know, I mean, so in, in that sense, gold is the ultimate 
distributed network or, you know, decentralized network. There is no node of any kind. I mean, there are no nodes. Every coin is its own node. Uh, so that's that, that's the difference. So I, 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 I'm, I think that when the crisis hits, whenever it hits, and when it becomes, if and when crypto becomes a real threat, um, to the to the to the monetary monopoly, it, it will be acted against, and potentially very severely. But we are not there yet, and and gold may as well. We don't know that. I just I just think gold is much more difficult to bring to heel than than digital assets. Yeah, interesting. And as most of these interviews end, there's so it it's it's. You know, we talk about the dichotomy of crypto, but it's also the dichotomy of looking forward to the future in that it's somber and it can be it can be depressing, but it's also very interesting and in one way exciting to see all these really massive macro forces at play for a century. And and it's it's a jigsaw puzzle. And it's the question of how is that gonna play out? And so you know, you've been so generous. With Why is it depressing? It shouldn't be depressing anybody. I mean, it's like you know, I, I mean, feel, it's human condition. I, I feel similar, but that's that's probably the greatest reaction I get to. I don't know if it's how it is for you, but the majority of my friends and and peers, they're not in, interested in this stuff. And some may listen to this, some may not. But the main reaction is well. I just don't want to think about that or that's depressing. And so, yeah, I don't feel that way, but I, I empathize and I understand that a lot of people do. And I may not under, I, I may be like, you know, I don't understand it, but it doesn't change how they feel. And so I don't know, you know, that's actually interesting. A question to you, how, how do we talk about these things with someone in a way that doesn't just turn them off right away and say, oh, that's very doomsday, that's depressing, I would rather just, I don't know, go, go back to my day-to-day, which is enjoyable, and like I don't feel these, these things you talk about, I don't necessarily feel my day-to-day. I turn on the news and I see that. But like, how do we bring these people in and have a conversation about some bigger picture stuff that can be somber? But You can't. You, and, and nobody ever had. I mean, that's that's why history repeats itself, hmm. because humans don't change and, and they don't want to deal with issues until... Look, Pericles, who was a, a Athenian politician, I forgot, 700 BC or something like that, he's, he had a couple of good quotes. One of them was, just because you don't take interest in politics doesn't mean that politics won't take inter- an interest in you. That's a good quote. So, right. So just because people in uh, Germany in the 19... 19- 20s weren't interested in politics or in Russia in the 19 teens or in the 1980s, it, it didn't mean that that what happened in the end did not have profound impact on their lives. Uh, and those who hid their head in the sand, you know, probably paid the highest price. The other thing the same Pericles said is, is that uh, uh, the key is not to predict the future, but to be prepared for it. And uh, good times... Uh, and I would say that despite everything I'm saying and all the inequality and everything, on a relative basis to other parts of the world and to history before us, uh, these have been phenomenally good times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know people take for granted, you know, we talk about poverty and we talk about 
you know, inequality. But let's face it, a hundred years ago, people didn't have indoor plumbing. I mean, you know, we're probably, even the poor people, just in terms of physical immediate, other than homeless people, but in, in, in terms of working poor, let's call uh, in terms of immediate creature comforts, are probably we are the most comfortable uh, generation of humans that have ever have, has ever lived in the, in the history of the world. I'm talking about cars. I'm talking about access to uh, medicine, food, and no matter how restricted it is on a relative basis to the rich, in or well off or whatever you want to call them, uh, in the Western world. It is infinitely better than in a lot of places in the world uh, today, and is infinitely better than even it, it, that it was in the United States and in Western Europe 100, 200 years ago. So, medicine, uh, vaccines, wh whatever, you know, uh, access to food, even if these are quote unquote bad calories, uh, life expectancy. You know, the proof of the pudding is in eating it. I mean, life expectancy is longer than it's pretty much been. And uh, so the fact that some people are dying faster and, and are less healthy. I mean, people used to die at 30. I mean, that was just most people didn't make it to old age. We now do. So I think the perspective is very important here. So I think it's not. And, and that's why a lot of people are not paying attention to the bigger picture. But we shouldn't take for granted these things that I've just described that you can walk in the store and even with all the shortages, you can still buy, you know, what pretty much whatever you want uh, and not starve and have access to indoor plumbing and sanitation facilities. We're taking it for granted. And so, so people who take it, you know, live their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, it's comfortable. <coughs> in a fundamental sense, it's comfortable. They're not worried about the implications of what's going on, but I think, they will, these implications will affect people in very profound way, not to the point of its old death, but to the point of some of these comforts may become unaffordable to many people that can afford them right now. And to some people who could afford much more higher level of comfort will not be able to afford that either. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think it's all about. Not to, now I'm not getting into politics here, but of course, um, civil liberties loss of civil liberties is another big issue or potential further loss of civil liberties is a big, huge issue, which again, most people either don't care about or don't feel until it affects them personally. Uh, you know, the famous uh, line or from Martin Niemöller, who was a uh, German pastor who said, you know, when they came for the socialists, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the communist or whatever, trade unionists. And then they came for the Jews. And he didn't say anything because it wasn't anything to do with him. And then they came for him. And there was nobody else, you know, to speak up. So that's the dynamic that's dangerous. Um, but look, Singapore is not a democracy. But if anybody has been there or go on YouTube and take a look, looks pretty good, you know, from the outside. So, <laughs> and I guess people in Singapore are okay with it. Um, so they don't have civil liberties in the same way that we understand civil liberties, but economically it's fine. Uh, and so, so I think, so I, I think the bottom line of what I'm saying here, as long as economically things are fine, people will continue to ignore uh, what's going on. It's when 
the proverbial hits the fan, that's when people focus. You know, that tends to get everybody focused. Uh, when it hits their refrigerator. In other words, you open the refrigerator and there's not enough there to eat. That's where nothing focuses the mind like that. And that's why I think until things go badly, uh, most of the people will continue to float in this sort of <laughs> ethereum <laughs> or ether of, uh, of thought and feelings without paying much attention. And that has never been any different, just so you know. It has never, ever been any different. People didn't see the Soviet collapse coming. People didn't see Nazi Germany coming. They didn't see the Russian Revolution coming. They didn't see the British Empire collapse coming. They didn't see any of that. But then it happened and had to deal with the consequences of it. And I think we're kind of here. We're in the same similar position or steaming along the same coast, if you will, in nautical terms. Yeah, on a similar path. Well, we'll certainly yeah. see. Um Simon, thank you so much for your time, but also all your thoughts. And um, and especially diving into crypto, it's very interesting to hear a bit more of your nuanced view. Um, sure. Which has been interesting. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again. Maybe we'll do this every year or something. <laughs> Oh, I just I, I I hope the story flattens out. <laughs> the trajectory flattens out. Yes, because the rate we're going. Don't we all? Next year or the year after that may not be as good a conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people, and that way we can keep doing this every week. So we look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks again. <laughs>